Hello, and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm Jonathan Carl, ABC News Chief White House Correspondent. And I'm Rick Klein, ABC News Political Director. Day two of our daily podcast, and Rick, a bombshell this morning. ABC News, Washington Post, our tracking poll for the first time since the convention, for the first time since May, we have Donald Trump in the lead. Now, before Gary Langer gets mad at me, our, our polling director, uh, it's not really a lead. It's, uh, it's within the margin of error. It's statistically tied. It's a dead heat. It's not actually a full percent. If you look in the numbers, it's 0. 0.7, et cetera, et cetera. But my God, when you look at it, it says Trump plus one. The immutable truth number one is that Trump right now in our tracking poll is, is plus one. Immutable Trump number two is that he is surging. He is surging right now to even a statistical tie. That is something given where this race has been. Now, let me turn you to immutable truth number three, which is that, John, I think for all of this, the race hasn't really changed. I don't see the battleground map changing really much at all, even with this surge, which I think is a natural tightening of the race down the stretch. Yeah. Now, uh, we should also point out that there are uh, a couple other new polls out this morning that show Hillary Clinton with a national lead uh, around six points. So the the polling is kind of all over the map. There, There has been one slight change over the past week, at least in the ABC News race ratings in the states. Florida has moved from advantage Hillary to toss up. But even if you put Florida in the Trump column, even if you put Ohio in the Trump column, frankly, even if you put North Carolina and Iowa in the Trump column, he still uh, comes up short electorally. But the race does seem to be at least slightly tightening. I think that's I think it is tightening. And I think that the Clinton folks would acknowledge it. I'd also say, though, I don't know that the email story for as much play as it got Friday and over the weekend is a game changer. And you can attribute the tightening to that. I think a lot of the tightening is natural. I talked to a bunch of strategists, both parties in the last couple of days, John, who say maybe it's a point two points tops, but they're not seeing Clinton's numbers crater. They're not seeing Trump's numbers surge. I think it gave him a closing message and an opening, and it gave her a big distraction when she's trying to talk about uh, the enthusiasm and get out the vote operations, and that's having a little harder time break through. But I do not think that this was the October surprise that changed everything. I think there's one big thing that hasn't changed, which is Hillary Clinton's still favored in this race. But I look for tells sometimes beyond what we see in the polling, beyond what we are you know, hearing from the sources that we talk to uh, every day in the campaigns. We now see Hillary Clinton out campaigning with Alicia Machado. Mm. Uh, that does not seem to me to be a move that you take from a position of strength in your final days. It looks like she's trying to replay some golden oldies. Remember her? You know? <laughs> Let's bring her back. Exactly. This is, this is like, you know, when, when, when the old rock band comes out with their greatest <laughs> hits album because the, the, the last couple didn't quite hit the charts. Uh I mean, that does not seem like uh, a campaign that is confidently uh, going into the final stretch. And the flip side, John, is that you see Donald Trump engaging in a blue state tour of, of America. He's, he's hitting New Mexico. He's hitting Minnesota. He's hitting Michigan. He is in Pennsylvania uh, just today on Tuesday with his running mate giving a health care speech. Those are – those are great states for him to be competitive in, but they aren't on anybody's list. The, the Trump campaign saying that's expanding its ad buy into New Mexico, into Wisconsin, into Pennsylvania. I, I, John, do you think this is a, a sign of confidence or a sign of concern that they don't have a viable map? I think that this is clearly a sign of concern because the map that we have been talking about now pretty consistently for the last 10 days, the kind of the Trump theory of the case – was that he would basically get to exactly 270 electoral votes by winning the toss-up states, winning Florida and Ohio and North Carolina, winning Nevada, winning 
uh, New Hampshire, which as you and I have discussed, gets you to 269, 269, and then winning that number two, con- the second congressional district of Maine, getting him to 270. I think that what is hitting the Trump campaign is that New Hampshire just doesn't look like a state that Donald Trump is going to win. We had a new poll out uh, just in the last 24 hours with Trump with, with Hillary up seven points in New Hampshire. We've had other polls putting her up more than 10 points. And Nevada doesn't look very strong right now for Donald Trump either. So it, he needs to win somewhere else. If you're not going to win there, then you got to look where. I think their next, their next kind of wish list is Pennsylvania. Well, Pennsylvania is huge. And I've said this, John, um, I haven't been consistent on much in this campaign, as you know. But this is one point that I've been cons- consistent on, which is show me a, a real poll that shows Donald Trump in the lead or even tied in Pennsylvania, and I will show you a map that he can win the presidency. Without Pennsylvania, it becomes extraordinarily hard to do, particularly because Virginia has, has faded, particularly, as you mentioned, New Hampshire is is falling off the, uh, the map as well. He's got to win Pennsylvania. He's got to win Pennsylvania. And you're right. The backup strategies involve all kinds kinds of of wacky scenarios in the upper Midwest and putting a Minnesota or a Wisconsin or a Michigan into play, putting a New Mexico back on the board. That's, that's fantasy land. That's well, not based did, on statistics. I, I thought you talked to a top Republican operative outside the Trump campaign that had an interesting characterization as to Donald Trump's chances in New Mexico. Yes. In fact, in, to quote, he has a better chance in New Mexico than in Mexico. Well, that's not nothing. I, I mean, you'd be polling to back that up. You can, you can, you <laughs> I mean, can look at any reliable polling in Mexico. <laughs> how, many, how many electoral votes down there? I, I, look, I, I think this campaign is more confident than they were a week ago. But would they trade places a week out with the Clinton campaign? If you could take everything and say you got oh, to, of you course get, not. Of course not. No, I don't think so. Even with the one point edge in our poll, our poll, even with momentum, even with the Comey story, even with the Obamacare story, they would not trade places today. And, and then we, we've had a, a couple other stories out there that you know we're, we're past October, so we don't have any more October surprises. Uh, but this was kind of a doozy of a story in the New York Times today about uh, Trump's uh, 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 tax avoidance uh, uh, procedure here, <laughs> the, one that, the one that theoretically helped him avoid paying taxes for uh, for a decade or two. Um, the, the, the Times seems to trace it to suggest that he was deducting losses of other people's money on his tax return. Now, that I, I'm not an economist. I'm not an accountant. That sounds a little shady. <laughs> it's good work if you can get it, I guess. But, and, and this is a practice that's now been outlawed. And I, I think this, this tax story, to me, though, doesn't move the needle. I think if you were not going to vote for Donald Trump because you thought he was a tax cheat or a tax avoider or, or even that he didn't give as much money to charity as he said, then I think you're already there. I don't think that there's anything in this scheme that, that changes that. Uh, I still think... He should have put his taxes out a year ago, and the tax stories would be, you know, baked in the cake or long gone by now. But oh man, we'd still be going through those returns. Oh, I don't are you kidding think me? So. Rick? We, don't, we hey. don't have that kind of we don't have that kind of patience. So uh, we we are we are joined uh, on this podcast by somebody that uh, loyal listeners of this podcast, by the way, and and I know your mom is one, uh, Rick. Uh, my my brother Alan. I mean, we we got we have we have dozens and dozens of of, of people that do not miss a single podcast uh, who know that you and I share a passion not just for politics, but also for history and for baseball. And there is one person when you combine those three things that I believe stands above all others, an historian, a writer, a thinker, uh, somebody who knows politics, history, and baseball, a first ballot Hall of Famer in that area, and his name is George Will, and he joins us now on the line. George, how are you? I thrive, and you? I am great. I'm looking forward uh, to... uh, 
uh, to, to that Chicago Cubs comeback that we'll talk about uh, as soon as we, we get through the, uh, the, the, what's happening on the presidential run. But I've got to ask you, um, I, I, read, I read your column right before the Jim Comey news uh, came out, and you were, you were predicting pretty much a, 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 a route, Donald Trump getting routed in kind of historic terms. Do you still think that's going to happen? I don't think it'll be a route, at least not what it would have been absent Mr. Comey's Delphic intervention in this process. But uh, it's not clear to me how this changes the Electoral College math. That is, it's not clear to me what states are going to be tipped over, perhaps by reluctant uh, Clinton voters becoming reluctant Clinton non-voters. So I don't think it's changed the fundamental dynamic. So what's your take on... Comey's move here. I mean, he's been hammered by just about everybody. And uh, you know, B- B- Brett Stevens of the New York of the uh, Wall Street Journal said that said he should resign. Um, this is somebody who's no friend of of Trump's or Clinton's. What's what's your take? Well, the the I and the acronym FBI stands for investigations. They're supposed to investigate, build a case or not case, submit what they learn to the prosecutorial arm of the Justice Department, and the Justice Department takes it from there. Uh, he broke with precedent, perhaps with good reason, perhaps he thought with good reason, in the July statement where he came out and spoke at length about the conclusion they had reached in a, an investigation. This is uh, even more problematic. He, comes, he sends this letter to Congress that says, uh, emails of unknown provenance and unknown content might, we haven't had time to examine them, might be pertinent that's a word to watch for here, pertinent to the prior Clinton investigation. Something can be pertinent without being significant. That is, it could be pertinent in the sense that it's redundant evidence of what we already know, which was that she was, in Comey's language, extremely careless in handling sensitive materials. Uh, This is not news people can use. It's of no help to voters. And it's of no help to anyone, so far as I can see. You know, it's an old saying our grandmothers told us, don't talk unless you can improve the silence. And I don't think he did. So, so do you think he has an obligation now to give additional status reports, to, to talk about the relevance to an investigation, additional findings? Because he's already broken the seal, gone out there this way, should he be out there giving us more updates? Well, <laughs> that makes it worse. Although his silence is bad enough, uh, that could make it worse if we get what a daily report on what they're finding in this computer. How many? Come on the podcast. That's fine with us. (laughs) We'll do it right here. Well, I mean, how many hundreds of thousands of emails are there that they have to decide? Some are duplicative. Maybe all are duplicative. Maybe none are. I mean, we're we're seven days from an election. And, in fact, of course, the election, thanks to this misbegotten practice of protracted early voting, what, 20 million votes have already been cast. So uh, I I think silence would be golden at this point. Um, The Clinton folks would probably take that as well. Now, I I recall late in in the campaign in 2012, you saw a number of blue states breaking potentially for Romney. Of course, that didn't happen. But we are seeing... The Trump campaign make a play in blue states. They're, they're, they're saying that they can put Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, New Mexico, Pennsylvania in play. At least they're not saying New York and California anymore. (laughs) They're off of New York and California. But 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 George Rhode Island, the Trump Rhode Island surge. Do you see that? Is there is there a a, a closet Trump vote that hasn't picked up been picked up in in public polling that could 
that could surge him to unexpected paths to 270? Well, I, I doubt it. It seems to me both campaigns are reading the same polls, and I don't think they're reading polls that look markedly different. Uh, I was flabbergasted that Trump showed up in New Mexico. New Mexico was won by George W. Bush very narrowly in, what, 2004? Correct. Since then, it has been moving steadily and emphatically away uh, from uh, from uh, being a plausible Republican target. He's not going to carry New Mexico. What he was doing there in these precious closing days of the campaign, I have no idea. Minnesota, I've got my doubts. I mean, Romney tried it. It didn't go, go anywhere. Uh, at the same time, they're just trying to get Pennsylvania, which was at least a more plausible target. So I don't see it. The, the question is, of the 18 states and D.C. that are in the so-called blue wall that protects Democrats, states in, in D.C. that have voted at least six consecutive times, actually Minnesota more than that, because Minnesota voted Democratic in 84, uh, with 242 electoral votes, I do not see one of those 18 states that I think Mr. Trump will win. Do you? I, you know, I, I think the only ones that, that are on my map right now that that would even take it from uh, where Romney landed in 2012 are Ohio and Iowa, which, of course, are not on your list, not part of right. the blue wall. So right. I, I, it, I, don't, I don't see signs of the dent. Uh, John, do you? No, I don't either. I don't either. Iowa, Iowa has an unusually large portion of non-college-educated whites, the basic Trump target. Ohio has a similar experience and a similar demographic. They make, those are, are united, but they just illustrate Mr. Trump's strategy, which is, I think, the Republican Party's recipe for disaster, which is to concentrate on getting an ever-larger portion of an ever-smaller portion of the electorate. So can we talk about what happens the day after then? And, and as, as I understand it, you've, you've taken your, uh, your, your Republican Party card and you've ripped it up, right? Correct. Okay. So what, what happens to this party once this election is over, assuming it is, you know, if, if it heads towards a Trump defeat, uh, a, a loss of seats in the Senate, a loss of, of, of seats in the House, if, if not control in either chamber? What, what, what happens to this party afterwards? It depends partly on the size of Mr. Trump's defeat. If it's a narrow defeat, that's the worst conceivable outcome for Republicans, uh, because then it will be the old stab-in-the-back theory, that but for people like Paul Ryan or Ben Sass or uh, lesser figures like George Will, mm -hmm. all would have been well. Uh, it were, if, it's, if the Electoral College does its duty and vastly exaggerates the emphatic nature of the outcome, that is, uh, Mrs. Clinton may win by four points, but well over 300 electoral votes, that would help the Republicans. But the Republican Party has to do several things. First, it has to somehow emancipate itself from its thraldom to the indignation industry of talk radio and certain cable uh, personalities that I think have a paralyzing effect on the party when it tries to deal with things like immigration. Until the Republican Party gets right with minorities in this country, it's never going to win another presidential election. I just take a look at the cover story in National Review this week called The Blue Wave. This goes state by state of the demographic changes that are adverse to the Republican Party. So first, they have, 
distance themselves from the indignation industry. Then the party has to look at its nominating process. Uh, it must never again have debates with 12 people on stage at a time. I don't know what you do to, to erect a kind of filter to keep a certain kind of candidate off, off the stage, but they have to work on their nominating process. So does George Will tape that that card back together on November 9th? Is there a path that, 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 that I would call you one of the greater lights, not with the lesser lights, but do you are you part of the, the solution for them moving forward? Or has the party alienated people like you because of where it has gone and, and where the interests have aligned in this very unusual year? Well, it, it, it depends on how long the party is hospitable to uh, Mr. Trump and people like him. I'm not saying that the people who like Donald Trump are like Donald Trump. They are people who are looking for a port in a very nasty, stormy year. There ought to be a kind of general amnesty all around. Everybody forgives everyone else. Uh, like at the end of a war, you get to... <laughs> yeah, like like uh, granted Appomattox. Sure. He, said to, he said to Lee's soldiers, take your horses and go home for the spring plowing. This was April. Uh, and And... A certain magnanimity is in order all around. Uh, it'll be easier with some people than with others, but uh, people have gone out of the way to disgrace themselves, endorsing Trump, withdrawing their endorsement, rethinking the withdrawal of their endorsement. I mean, you know who I'm talking about. There are enough of them out there. Yeah. But uh, th- then the party has to decide whether or not it really wants to do this kind of thing again. And what's going to happen to Paul Ryan? I mean... We did, there's this movement afoot among some in, in the House to basically deprive him of, of 218 votes for Speaker. Not that there's any candidate that I can see out there. I don't know who, who the heck it is if it's not Paul Ryan. Well, who would want the job? First of all, Paul Ryan didn't want the job. <laughs> not Paul Ryan. Yeah. A genuine draft is rare in American political history. And that this was, was a, draft. a genuine draft. He was drafted to be Speaker, didn't want the job. He wanted the job he'd been waiting for all his life, which is chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which is where he belongs and could serve the country best. I mean, I, Paul should not wa- waste his experience and intellect uh, being the traffic cop for legislation in the House. So you, you've said you don't want 12 people on that stage the next time around, but give us three or four names of folks that you would expect to see or think of where they are. You mentioned Ben Sass. I wonder if he's on your list. Evan McMullen, who may actually win electoral votes in Utah. Who's part of this next generation that you, you'd hope would put themselves forward for 2020? Well, if, if Evan McMullen carries Utah and becomes the first independent candidate since George Wallace in 1968 to carry a state, uh, he certainly ought to be heard from. Uh, there have to be some, some governors out there, uh, Tom Cotton, a senator from Arkansas. I mean, there, there's a rising generation. The Republicans have what the Democrats needed this year, which is a rising generation of talented people. Well, they had it. It's just Trump beat them all. This is true. Uh, but uh, maybe they won't do this again, and maybe Mark Cuban won't come in and replicate uh, this fiasco. Who knows? But, you know, for all the talk that we do about the agonies of the Republican Party. Look at the Democratic Party, oldest political party in the world. Speak winds up speaking of oldest with a 73-year-old Vermont socialist, or so he called, a 69-year-old uh, senator, and that was it. Uh, a former senator. I mean, the, where is the rising generation? Where is the where is the the well-stocked bench 
of world's oldest political party. And, and and how does and how does Hillary Clinton govern with a even if she gets a narrow lead in in, in you know narrow majority in the Senate, uh, she, she's got the, the liberals in that party already don't trust her, and are going to be demanding you know effectively effective control of the agenda and an agenda that she can't deliver on because Republicans will almost certainly still have at least nominal control in the House. Precisely, because therefore the most, the best thing that could happen to President Clinton and the country is a Republican Senate, so that she can turn to her base and say, "I'm awfully sorry, right. I'm terribly frustrated, most regrettably, I cannot do these batty things you want me to do: fifteen dollar minimum wage, so-called free tuition for uh, college, and all the rest." And then you'd find that that she could turn out to be a reasonably deal-making president. You know, the, when she she had good Republican friends in the Senate and Republicans who, whether or not they were her friends, thought she was competent, prepared, hardworking. Uh, if she confronts a Republican Congress, she will be the first Democrat elected president since Grover Cleveland, whose party did not control both houses of Congress. Uh, she might find it... Uh, very, very useful to have Republicans to deal with. And I would say the corollary to that is the worst case scenario for a President Clinton is to win a narrow majority in the Senate and a narrow majority in the House. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah. suddenly the liberals <laughs> think, oh my God, we're going to get it all, you know? Yes, and a consequence of that would be that uh, because the Republicans would then uh, use the 60-vote supermajority implicit requirement uh, as we now run the Senate, the Democrats would instantly change Senate rules, I think. All right. Go ahead, Rick. Uh, so I, I, I just want to be clear that I assume that based on what you're saying about the need for the Republican Party to, to kind of reinvent itself in a, in a, in a Trump land, after a Trump landslide, you are rooting for the Chicago Cubs to lose about 10 to nothing tonight so they can rebuild, go back in the offseason. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you right, misunderstand right? Oh. How, how cunning the Cubs have been with Machiavellian subtlety, the Cubs have lulled the Indians into a false sense of security. <laughs> so, and, okay. Two, two games in Cleveland, that doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't worry you as a Cubs fan. Well, we've got Arietta on full rest uh, going against Tomlin. Then we have uh, Hendricks uh, on full rest. Uh, I like the Cubs' chances. If I had to bet my net worth, I'd be very nervous, but I'd bet on the Cubs. You know, uh, 538, uh, our friend Nate Silver, uh, who does his you know odds and percentages of various things, he puts the odds of a Cubs victory in the World Series at almost exactly the same percentage, about 23 or 24%, I think was his last, as Donald Trump winning the presidency. Does that give you concern on either side of that equation? I think he's underestimating the Cubs and overestimating the Cubs. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if this is something you get behind. Roger Angel, who is, uh, the, 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 as you know, one of the great baseball writers of all time, uh, a young and spry, 96 years old, wrote that he, he thinks for the good of America, this series should be a best 8 out of 15. Can we get you on board for that? Let's double the size of the series. Yeah, you start the World Series in the middle of September, I'd be in favor of that. <laughs> well, like, just I this was, series, just this in, series. We I need was this in series. Wrigley Field Sunday night, and that's as cold as I want to be. <laughs> Fair enough. But but you feel like, I, 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 I'm sure you'd agree with this, this this is the right World Series for the country at the right time. I want it to go seven just to, just to, to, to savor the moment. Uh, Cleveland and Chicago, two historic franchises going at it right now, they, they deserve an epic battle, and the country needs more distractions. 
They absolutely do. And you've got two terrific managers at the top of their games. Uh, it's just wonderful, wonderful series. So one other thing before we let you go. One thing that has been great about this series and great about watching uh, Cleveland is the, the use of Andrew Miller. I mean, they have, they have the absolute lights-out guy out of the bullpen, and he's not the closer. Tony La Russa, my very good friend, really pioneered the modern, up until this point, the modern contemporary use of the relief pitcher because he had Dennis Eckersley. And he said the name of the game is to get the ball to Eck. That meant get a lead and get the ball to him in the ninth inning for outs 25, 26, and 27. Well, we're seeing that crumble now where managers rethink this and say, look, if we have the best pitcher in our bullpen, we should put him in at the highest leverage moment. For example, we're ahead by one or two runs. The other team is sending up their three, four, and five hitters. Why save your closer to face the bottom of the order two innings later? So I think we're seeing that one of the many interesting stories about this year is we're seeing right in front of us the orthodoxy about relief pitching rewritten. Yeah, absolutely. All right, George Will, great to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time, and uh, look forward to seeing you in person soon. Hope so. Thanks, you guys. Hey, thanks so much. So he's he's right about that, uh, looking at the relief pitching changing before our right 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 before our eyes it's oh amazing. it's great it's a and it's a great adjustment around the game and it's funny to me because i think baseball was stuck in traditions for so long we talk about this in politics too and there are occasionally campaigns people that will come around that, that try to change the basic rules of it you're seeing a lot of experimentation around that in baseball he's right about the managers in this series you see the more innovation per capita than uh, than in any two teams uh, you know you have madden who likes to bat bat pitchers eighth instead of ninth and uh, some just interesting maneuverable, strate- maneuverable strategic things that happen inside of a game. And, uh, and I, 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 he almost has me rooting for the Cubs. I got to say my heart's with the Indians this year and I, I'll take the flack for it for, for rooting against. I just feel like this is a magical year in Cleveland uh, and uh, with the convention and the, the Cavaliers and everything. I just I, I think they're Well, I'm definitely it. rooting for the Cubs tonight because I want this to go to you game, game seven. seven. Yeah. And I, I would just say I, I'll be you know, I mean, I've got no dog in this fight. I'd be happy with either team. We had that great interview with Ernie Banks a few years ago, and there, there's no greater guy in the history of baseball than Ernie Banks. It'd be nice to win one in his memory uh, for the Cubs. But I, I, I think the Cubs pull this out. I, I think that if you look at it, it's kind of like when we go state by state in the electoral math. You go, you go position by position. The Cubs have a better team. They've got, as, as George said, they've got two great pitchers going up. They don't need to win. They need to win one game at a time against Cleveland. Well, it's hard to Cleveland. do it. It's hard to do more than that. It's I, hard. I it's hard. But, but these so, guys are good. So, so then you, so you, you're predicting a Trump presidency then? No. I, so, so you can't have two – you can't have two things happen that are, that are against the <laughs> oh, odds. Oh, okay. I, okay. Maybe, maybe we need to get Nate on the phone. About the this, but, I mean, you know, I, I don't think you can have two low probability events happen back to back, right? Doesn't that kind of? I don't. That know takes how, care. Okay, I'm that not takes, a math guy, sure, but it just sure. seems like that's yeah, a problem. That makes that makes sense. Okay, we'll get we we'll get you down very firmly on that. No no question. But I think I, I do think in all seriousness, this this. We often talk about baseball getting politicized, and, and I remember John Kerry rooting for the Red Sox suddenly down the stretch, and he was that was supposedly some kind of omen. And we remember Rudy Giuliani switching allegiances, and Bill Richardson, and Hillary Clinton, all these guys. I am glad that neither of these campaigns is seriously trying to inject themselves into the into baseball because this World Series is better than this campaign. It is better than this campaign, and baseball should remain separate. All right. On that note, 
the end of our second edition, the second edition of our daily podcast. Uh, this is fun, Rick. We'll do it again tomorrow. I'm, I mean, this I'm, is, I'll be there. Uh, th- th- this is a big deal. So uh, let me just remind everybody. Take a moment, review the show on iTunes, follow us on Twitter. I'm at John Carl. We, of course, have Rick at Rick Klein. And don't forget, you can find all the other ABC News podcasts at abcnewspodcast.com. This show was produced by Robin Grattison and David Rind. They're a lot smarter than us, Rick. Okay? They have to press the button. Yes, exactly. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for our next daily podcast, and we'll talk to you then. For Rick Klein, I'm Jonathan Carl. Thanks for listening.